Welcome to this week's message from Rabbi Kevin Solomon, Senior Rabbi of Congregation Beth Hillel in Roswell, Georgia. Beth Hillel is one of the largest Messianic Jewish synagogues in the world and provides a place where Jewish people can find the Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus in Hebrew, and retain their Jewishness. It's also where Gentiles worship and embrace the roots of the faith in drawing closer to God. Click the link in the description to support this ministry or to view our YouTube channel. Let's join Rabbi Kevin now as he shares this word from Scripture. Rabbi Kevin is out this week in Eretz Yisrael, but we are honored to have one of our honorary mishpacha this here this week. Rabbi Stuart Winograd is the leader of Reach Initiative International. He and his wife spent many years leading congregations in the former Soviet Union, many years leading congregations in Belarus and Ukraine. He's still he is still overseas, uh, a number of them, and has been very involved in humanitarian efforts, aids across Ukraine during the conflict. Bethel has seeded funds into Ukraine through Rabbi Stewart and his his, uh, initiative. In addition, their ministry has arms in India, where Israeli backpackers go in addition to Israel itself, where the ministry specializes in ministering to Holocaust survivors and immigrants. He is like Mishpacha. He is like family to us. So let's give him a warm welcome, Rabbi Stewart Winograd and his wife, Chantal. Shabbat Shalom, everyone. It's a delight to be here with you, our spiritual mishpucha, chavarim, friends. And uh, of course, this is a special delight to share the pulpit with my best friend and beloved partner in ministry, my dear wife, Chantal. Well, it is a delight to be here with you, and I want to just start off by uh, saying thank you, all of you who pray for us, and our teams around the world. Thank you for those of you who help support the work financially. You are precious and valued partners in the work that the Lord is doing in those various countries that uh, our brother just announced. And we just returned actually 10 days ago from uh, being overseas for uh, close to three months. I was in Ukraine, India, and Israel, and a little stint in Singapore as well. And I got to tell you, the teams that we have on the ground in uh, Belarus, where life is tough, in India, where after the COVID now we're seeing 30 to 40 young Israelis attend our Erev Shabbat uh, celebrations every week, and uh, in Israel, where we're serving survivors and where our daughter Miriam, our oldest daughter, is leading an initiative to uh, welcome Ukrainian and other refugees fleeing the war. Uh, These are just people, I gotta just sing their praise. They are so devoted to Yeshua, so sacrificial, so compassionate, and God is just doing wonderful things through all of them, and we're just so happy that we can kind of come alongside them and help them move things forward. And uh, Again, thank you for your prayers. 
and support. And for those of you who are not familiar with Reach Initiative International, you can see a whole bunch of videos, teachings, more on all of these uh, various ministry initiatives by going to our website, reachii.org, R-E-A-C-H-I-I.org. And you can also sign up for our weekly e-news updates, which we uh, send out from the field to give you a sense of what God is doing through our teams and how to pray. And one more thing I want to announce is that uh, we brought some of our books, both the hardcover and the softcover, Behind the Curtain, The Candles Burn, Restoring the Lost Stories of the Holocaust Survivors of Belarus. What's unique about this book of the Holocaust, there's many books written about the Holocaust, what's unique about this one is we tell the story of the history of the Jewish people in Belarus through the eyes of 15 Holocaust survivors that it wouldn't be appropriate to call them close friends of ours, better to call them their like family to each of us, to me and Chantal. And as you go through their stories and the history, pre-war, Holocaust, post-war, in communist times, and then when we met them after the former Soviet Union collapsed, you will read not only stories of unbelievable suffering, but stories of courage and bravery, and then stories of the amazing redemptive work of Messiah Yeshua in the aftermath of unbelievable suffering. So if you haven't got a copy, we have them available to you. And for those of you online, uh, you can get that at reachii.org, R-E-A-C-H-I-I.org. Just go to our website and uh, all the information is there. And all the proceeds from this, these uh, books go to support our ministry to Holocaust survivors in Israel and in Belarus. Now i got to ask you a question. How many of you have seen the film Jesus Revolution? If you haven't seen it yet, you need to go see it. For those of you who are a product of that Jesus revolution that occurred in the 70s, like me and my wife, it's going to really lift you up. And for those of you who are not a product of that, it's going to tune you into a tremendous move of God. And uh, it's really worth going to see. And so in light of that, uh, we just uh, saw it for the second time, and in light of that, I wrote to Rabbi Kevin and said, you know, I think I want to do something a little different. What do you think? I think it'd be interesting and uplifting for people to hear our story, our testimony. And uh, for those of you who've been in the Lord for a while, we pray that it kind of rekindles something in you, rekindles a little fire. And for those of you who are seeking, you're looking for truth. You're in search of truth like me and my wife were. You are in search of meaning, purpose. We hope that our story will help you find some answers. And so here we go. I was born and raised in a secular Jewish family in New York City. My dad did not like religion. He did not think religion made the world a better place to live. 
And he would often quote Lenin, Vladimir Lenin of the former Soviet Union where God was proclaimed dead. He would often quote Lenin and say, religion is the opiate of the people and the Bible is full of fairy tales. My mom, who was raised in an Orthodox Jewish family, preserved some degree of Jewish tradition in our home. Though we rarely read the Bible or prayed at home, I did attend Hebrew school and was a bar mitzvah at the age of 13. I was born in Montreal, about 370 miles from New York, from a French-Canadian family. And uh, my father, as a patriarch and a good Catholic, was teaching us that one of the most important thing in life is to be a good person, to have good intention and do good. And uh, this is something important, although it was a little bit like unclear what good really would mean in different circumstances. And so uh, by the time I was six years old, uh, my father passed away suddenly and this left me shattered and uh, left me as a child filled with fear, especially the fear of death. After my bar mitzvah, I went on my own way like many of the Jewish boys and girls of my day and uh, gave little thought to the religion of my people as a teenager. My mom did compel the family to attend synagogue two times per year on Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. But since the services were almost always completely in Hebrew, a language I did not speak, I just sat there bored. I just sat there bored and could not wait to leave. My God was sports. My dad and mom were very good parents, loving and very devoted to their children, caring for and providing for their three kids in every aspect of life. They gave me good values. They taught me to be honest, hardworking, and to treat people with kindness and respect. From what they imparted to me, I was under the impression that the purpose of life was to get a good education, find a good wife, which I did, have good children, which I did, and have a profession that would earn enough money to care for them and provide for some of the good things of this life. And then one day, it all ends, and they bury you in the ground. But in my late teen years, I became dissatisfied with this worldview. Though I'm not trying to say that these things that my parents imparted to me were bad, I just began to feel there had to be more. I asked, what's the purpose of life? Why am I here? How do you find real satisfaction, happiness, and peace? And my search began. As a young child, I always knew that God existed. I, I knew that there was something more to life than just what I was able to see. I was very sensitive uh, kid, and um, although my siblings all uh, chose more like to be atheist or agnostic, I continued to believe in God, but I didn't know who he was really. 
And uh, I remember when I was seven years old, in order to support my candy addiction, I would go into the closet of my mom and, you know, go into the old coats to see if there was pennies or money. And although my mom had told me at some point that if you steal a penny, it's like stealing a hundred dollars, which brought conviction to me, but not enough for me to stop because candies were <laughs> candies were so good. <laughs> and so, but one day I went in there, and that was my first, I can say, encounter with the fact that God is present. And I went heading towards the closet, but I had this really uncomfortable feeling, thinking that maybe somebody is in the house, although I always made sure that nobody was there when I went in the closet. And when I got in there, I opened the door, and then I looked up, and it was as if I saw God looking down at me like this. And I felt very convicted, and I had such a strong sense that God is always watching. From this moment, I knew God is always watching, no matter where we are, what we do, how much we can hide. He's seeing it all. How He's old seeing was it this all. little candy addict? I, I was seven. I continued to be a candy addict, but I did stop picking the money in my mom's uh, pocket. So, and after, as far as I could remember, uh, I had trouble at night, I would have nightmares. And uh, when I was even younger than this, uh, younger than seven, somebody had spoken to me about the end of the world. They said that the stars would fall, the earth would explode, and all this bad news, but never shared the good news with me. So it left me really traumatized, and I had consistent nightmares about the end of the world, about wars, about earthquake, and I was always in the middle of them and waking up in, you know, in uh, sweat and fears. And uh, by the, uh, when I was 16 years old, I had a dream that was different. It started similar. It started that there was seven sun that was rising. I was in Montreal, it's winter time, and I'm walking in the street, and it was like amazing. It was beautiful phenomena. Everybody got excited, and by the end of the day, it was like summer. The snow had all melted, people were going out to the old Montreal to party, and I was alone, and I was going into each place, like I was going into one bar, and then into another, and I just couldn't connect. And I felt like this is senseless. And I had this sense of foreboding that something, you know, was just not right. And uh, I went to sleep, and then the next morning I woke up, and again, the seven sun were there, but the atmosphere was different. And I was walking in the streets, seeing in the uh, stores, televisions, uh, lots of televisions. They were showing news from different countries. And it was eruption here, this uh, earthquake here. And it was all the catastrophe that was happening because the earth was overheating. And at that moment, I thought, wow, Montreal has a dormant volcano. So I turned around to see Mont-Royal, and I see it erupting. And so I had to run, understanding where am I going to run to? Everybody is running away, but, you know, the earth is going to probably explode soon. And so, but still, I, I, I was running, and I was trying to get into people's car. Nobody would stop. And all of a sudden, this blue car stops, and I just jump in. I sit in the passenger seat, and then the driver looks at me, and it's like, 
peace came on me, and I woke up. And I told my friend in school, my friends, because I thought, this is amazing. This is the first time I have a nightmare about the end of the world, and it ends good. So I kept it in my heart. This I never forgot it. And so, um, but I continue as a teenager. Uh, I got involved into um, drugs and alcohol. I was seeking for truth, seeking for, you know, for something else. And like many in my uh, generation, I was going after all of these things and also getting involved in the occults. Looking for love in all the wrong places. That's right. <laughs> And, but I know that God was pursuing me. I was also traveling a lot. And so one time when I was in Greece, um, in a youth hostel, there was this young guy, and he kept reading his Bible. And I thought, that's really strange. I mean, he was the only one doing this. We were doing everything else, but he was reading his Bible. And, uh, but I befriended him, and he would talk to me. He was so excited. He has new life. He is he's changing. And he was telling me all these things that, truthfully, it didn't make lots of sense to me. But I remember him saying, yeah, Jesus is alive today. And then a few days after, as I was walking down the street, I was thinking, if he's alive today and he healed people back then, then for him, it's not a problem probably to heal my wart that I had on my finger and that the doctors could not take out because my nail would, would be destroyed. And so I, and I was really embarrassed. I always held my hand like that. So I, I said, well, okay, if you heal the blind, you can heal this. And then I forgot. And the next morning I woke up, washed my hands, and this wart fell off and it was baby skin under. And so I knew it was Jesus that healed me. I told my friend, I told the other people, but then I didn't know what else. I didn't know that God had a wonderful life for me and he wanted me to walk with him. I didn't, nobody really shared it with me. So I went on continuing to do the things I was doing, which were getting worse and worse. And uh, at some point I had rented a house with a friend of mine. We were going to turn it into a commune. And, uh, and I got so excited remodeling it that I totally ignored her and her desire to see how she wanted to have it done. I was kind of bullying her. And, um, and one day she blew up on me and she said, what horrible person I am. And remember, for me, it was important to be a good person. <laughs> and so that my father had taught me. So this was heartbreaking. I, I ran out, laid outside in the field, and I cried before God. And then I started to think, how can anybody be good? Like, even when I try to be good, it's from selfish motives or, or it's from uh, a pride, you know. And I was see going deeper and deeper, and I was seeing there's nothing good. There's nothing good in me, and there's nothing good in anybody. And it reminds me of the scripture in Romans uh, 3.10, where it says, uh, there's no one that's righteous, no, not one. And I really was experiencing this, but again, I didn't know the salvation of Yeshua. So I kept going with my life. But remembering these moments, which I consider like little mini encounters with the Lord. That scripture is also in Ecclesiastes, where it talks about 
you know, no one really can get it all together all the time, you know, and uh, we all have these selfish and proud and angry and foolish moments. Well, here I am. My quest continues for the meaning of life, and uh, it led me to read a lot and to travel across North America, Western Europe, Turkey, and Israel. And my plan was to travel across the world and to meet people from other cultures, other belief systems, hoping to meet someone somewhere who could help me find the answers that I was thirsting for, that I needed. Yet, everyone that I read, every author, and everyone I talked to all impressed me in the same way. They were all caught like philosophical intellectuals trying to grab something that they could not reach. They were just like I was. And that wasn't very helpful. At the age of 25, I had come to the conclusion that there was probably no purpose to life. And the best thing one could do was just accept it. That's the best piece you're going to find. Just accept that life has no purpose. And I was a very sad young man, as you could imagine. Being a part of the hippie generation, I had decided to live a simple life and go back to the land. I began working at an organic farm where about 15 young people gave their labor to the farmer in exchange for room and board and learning the art of organic farming. One day, a young man drove up with a woman way older than him, and uh, Michael was obese. He had a deformed arm, and it turned out that woman was his mom. Some of the cool people, cool quotation marks, they began mocking Michael behind his back. Oh, look at that. That guy came with his mother, not cool. You know, that kind of nonsense. I didn't like that. Even as a young boy, I never liked that. Uh, and I always felt like standing up for the underdog. So I was just drawn to be a friend to Michael, thinking I would be kind of his hero because he was probably very insecure. To my surprise, as I got to know Michael, I discovered that he was one of the most secure people I had ever met in my life. <laughs> and we soon began to discuss, no wonder he came up with his mom, he was secure. <laughs> he soon he, we soon began to discuss the questions that were burning in my heart. What is the meaning of life? Why are we here? How do you find true happiness, love, fulfillment, peace? And I was in awe of the understandings that came out of Michael's mouth. And at some point during our regular talks, I asked, Michael, where do you get this insight? He alluded to the fact that in some way it came from my Jewish people. Then, then he began to speak. Yes, it's okay. Then he began to speak about the Bible and Jesus being the source of his wisdom and stability, and Jesus being the Jewish Messiah. I quickly let him know, like my father, I wanted no part of religion. 
He responded, I'm not talking about religion. I'm talking about a relationship with your Creator, which will uncover for you the real meaning of life. He suggested I read the stories of Jesus in the New Testament and get acquainted with the books of Genesis and Exodus in Tanakh, the Old Testament, as well as the Psalms and Proverbs. Well, when he said that, I first felt like saying, no way, buddy. But then my pride entered in. You know, God can even use our weakness, foolishness, and bad motives. And my pride entered in and said to, I said to myself, someone who's going to write a book on the fact that life has no purpose, I ought to know why millions of people around the world are interested in this book, the Bible, which I had never, ever opened for myself. So I started reading, and I prayed the prayer that Michael suggested. I prayed, God, if you are real, please reveal yourself to me. And if Jesus is really the Messiah, please let me know that also. <laughs> and so... As I read, I was amazed by Jesus. I like to call him Yeshua today because it restores his Jewishness, you know. That's what his mom and dad called him. His friends called him Yeshua, which means God's salvation. And uh, I was amazed at his teachings. He taught about compassion, love, mercy, forgiveness, Serving others makes you great rather than leading others and making money and becoming famous becomes great. I was amazed. And not only this, I was amazed that he actually practiced all these things in the way he related to people. I had never heard anything like it. I had never seen anything like it. And remember, I was raised in a real good family where my parents really loved on their kids and took care of their kids, but nothing like this. Another thing happened when I started reading the Bible. A presence came into my life. It wasn't visible or something I could touch, but it's kind of like, you know, when the wind blows, you kind of know it, and this presence, it was big and powerful, came into my life, and I got to tell you, <laughs> I was frightened. I thought to myself, Am I hallucinating? Am I going crazy? Am I meeting the devil? Or am I meeting God? I had no idea. I just knew something was happening. So I decided to ask Michael about it. And he reminded me of something he had told me. He said, do you remember I told you that Jesus rose from the dead? And if you take steps toward him, he will take steps toward you? And he said, that's what's happening. God is taking steps toward you as you're taking steps toward him. And so that reassured me some, but I still was kind of wondering, you know, what's going on here? Because it was all so new. I also noticed that as I was reading, it was like one voice speaking to me, both this presence and the words from the book. And I often would have tears running down my eyes, which wasn't normal for me at that time in my life. 
So I, I knew something was happening. I was getting softer inside. Something good was happening. Then one day, I was reading the story recorded in the book of John, chapter 8. Most of you know this story. It was a story about, it took place in Jerusalem. It was a story about when some of our religious people, Jewish religious folks, living in Jerusalem, they caught a woman in adultery. And they grabbed her. And they brought her to Yeshua. And they said, Moses says that such a woman should be stoned to death. What do you say? And Yeshua, in his way, says, if you have no sin, you can be the first to cast a stone. And then he writes in the sand. And I don't know what he wrote in the sand, but I'm guessing maybe it was some of their skeletons in the closet. And then the story says that they all left from the oldest to the youngest. And then he says to the woman, where are those who accuse you and condemn you? And she says, they are not here anymore. And then he says to her, neither do I condemn you. Go live your life and sin no more. In that moment, suddenly and unexpectedly, it was like I suddenly was standing before Yeshua. And suddenly, you can call it a revelation, awareness, whatever you prefer, I was aware of the beauty, the awesomeness, the holiness, the bigness, the power, the purity of God, of Yeshua standing there. And I was also aware of the fact that no longer was I big, proud steward. I was small, broken, and dirty. And it kind of was like too much, almost like, wow. But in that very same moment, I experienced kind of like an embrace from Yeshua, an embrace of love and mercy that caused me to weep and weep and weep. I don't know if it was 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20, something like that. And then when I stopped weeping and I kind of came to myself, I realized that I felt clean and new, like he cleaned me up and made me new. And then I understood that what I was experiencing was exactly what Yeshua spoke about to one of our great religious leaders, the story recorded in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And I'm just going to focus on verses 3 and 5 through 7. Yeshua answered Nicodemus, our Jewish leader. He said, Amen, amen, I tell you, unless one is born from above or again, born again or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then he continued and added, I tell you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What is born of flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be surprised that I say to you, you all must be born again, born from above. 
I realized I had been born again of the Spirit, made new, cleaned, cleansed, like he said he would. And so I was very excited about this, and in my zeal, I went to tell my mom and dad. And my dad said, oh my goodness, I thought I raised a son with some sense. Send him to a psychiatrist. And my mom said, my Yiddish mama said, how can you betray your people and join with the Christians who persecuted our ancestors throughout the centuries in Europe? Send them to a psychiatrist. <laughs> and and uh, more on that later. <laughs> By the age of 18, I went and moved to New York, uh, to Woodstock, New York, a little bit closer to New York. And the reason was because I was getting deeper into New Age, deeper into the occult, and this was and is, I believe today still, a big New Age center. And there um, I also got initiated with Eastern religion and uh, continued to take drugs, and the drugs were getting stronger as we were going, I was in search for peace, for love, for truth. I believed that I was going to learn and then I would teach others. I would be an agent of, of this peace, but I had no peace. I went to bed and I would see my heart like with a thick chain around it. I understood I wasn't free. I uh, had, again, you know, uh, nightmares, but these nightmares were like I had a dark presence that would come over and would start strangling me in my dream. And I knew that if I didn't make myself to wake up, I would die. I had this repeatedly over and over. And of course, I was dealing with a lot of darkness and the darkness, you know, was penetrating deep into my life. And so um, I would do more meditation, study more gurus. I figured I got to do a little bit more of that to get better. I also was practicing tarot reading and, and all this kind of stuff. And, um, and I had an experience at some point. On, I was on heavy drugs. And uh, when I would take certain drugs, I would see the devil in people. I would see demons in people. It was really upsetting, really hard. And, uh, and then that night, it just was very intense. And I thought, I have enough of this. I'm done. I think I'm dying. And I'm happy. And so, and through the, the night went, and after a while, I couldn't move. And so my friends took me and they laid me on the couch and they put a blanket over me. I felt like they were putting the blanket over my head. I thought I was dead. And then I saw something like I was rushing down a corridor and at the end of the corridor, it was, there was a wall, but on the side there was an open door. And when I got to it, I saw like it was a horrific uh, figure, very demonic, welcoming me there. And it was dark and burning and, and really like repulsive. And I understood, I don't want to go there. And that's where I'm heading. And I don't want to go there. And, but I don't want to live. So I'm kind of stuck in this corridor. And I experienced a voice that said, Jesus came and he was a perfect, 
perfect man and he lived amongst people. And so I thought, well, if the perfect one is able to live among people, well, I'm not the perfect one and I'm far from it. And so I should be able to tolerate and to deal with people that are not perfect too. So I somehow fell asleep, woke up in the morning, remembering what had happened, but really not knowing what to do with it. So I continued to live my life the way I was living. And um, then springtime came, it was April 13th, it was Friday the 13th, also happened to be Good Friday and was Passover. So it was really like a culmination of all of these things. And I thought, is not the best time to do like a, a, a Good Friday dinner, which I didn't know what that really was. But I said, let's do that to all my Jewish friends, because all my friends were Jewish. And we're there in New York City. And we decided to do this. So uh, I made the big macrobiotic dinner. We're <laughs> sitting on the floor, long table. It looked like the Michelangelo uh, painting. <laughs> and then the father of one of these uh, friends of mine came in and he said, a Jewish father, came in and said, so what are you guys doing? And I said, we're having a Good Friday dinner. And then I saw him look at me like that, and then he called his son. <laughs> so I'm not sure what transpired there, but after the dinner, we went to a punk bar, all of my friends. And when we were there, uh, I noticed that some of my friends were talking to somebody. I approached this somebody, and, uh, and I realized he's talking about Jesus. And I thought, well... I know about that, I grew up with that, so for me, I'm more interested in deep mystery of the East. But there was something that was attracting me to this person, and I have to say it wasn't his look, because all my friends were like hippies and artists and musicians, long hair, patched clothes, you know, like very colorful people. This guy was very simple looking kind of person. And you might ask, what this simple-minded, simple-looking, not minded, simple-looking person whose God used to be sport and now, and still dressed that way, and who now is encountering this kind of super hippie artist in this punk rock bar, what is this on fire, born-again follower of Yeshua doing in CBGB's a punk rock bar? Well, next door to my parents' home where I lived was Mitchell, who was going to be the author of the marijuana gospel. He was a bit fried on drugs, and he kind of pushed me to go out that night, which I never went out with him either before or after, and for some reason I said, yes, I'll just go wherever you want, and I'm going to preach the gospel to people in the bars. So he kept talking in between the songs because it was a concert, you know, and there was loud music. But in between, he would like hurry up and talk. And I don't know how many songs it took, how many minutes, but about maybe 10 or 15 minutes, he asked me to marry him. I know some of you are saying, what took me so long? And so I thought, he's crazy, but okay, all my friends are crazy, so what's the difference? <laughs> And so, so we continued to talk because, again, there was something. And I, I, in those days, I would have said the aura. 
But today I know it's the Holy Spirit that was in him and God was using him to speak to my heart. One little side note, in our congregations today, everybody who's going to get married needs to go through six months of premarital counseling. Okay, so he grew up, he grew up since then, but he was a very, very strong, serious believer, so he knew he couldn't marry somebody that was not a believer. I mean, he shouldn't. And so the pressure was on. (laughs) So he wanted to talk to me about the Lord, and we met for some days after, and after a few days of that, which I was interested in learning, it was really... mm, you know, it was like good for my soul. I experienced goodness from my soul. But then uh, he was also pressuring me, and I understood that, um, you know, that he won't stop. So I said, okay, I said I believed in everything else, and I take everything else, so I'll take this too, along with everything else I believe. And so I prayed, yes, I became a believer, and now, you know, okay, we're going to get married. So, and marriage is forever. And I thought, how could, how could I marry somebody and marriage is forever? I was never in a relationship with a guy for more than a few weeks. I, and, you know, I don't think that that's going to work. And so... 44 we, years coming up. We continued to talk. We continued to talk. And then I felt I'm going to break his heart. Might as well be now instead of, you know, in a few months. So after a week of us spending time together, we went up to, um, we were heading up north to visit some of his friends. And he, uh, I told him, stop the car. This is where we part. And so uh, I got out of the car went back to New York City, flew to California. I was heading towards Hawaii, where it was a big uh, gathering of New Age. (laughs) And then I got to get saved. Give me a minute. Um, And so I'm in San Francisco. And but before I left New York, I made sure to get a Bible in French because it was easier for me to read than the King James Version he had given me. And so I, I started to uh, What did read. I know? I was reading the Bible, and the more I was reading it, the more, less I was reading my other books. And I was experiencing something that was like going into my heart and that was touching me. And, and although it was oftentimes like uh, it was convicting me of the fact that I was really a mess, that I was sinful... It was still like, I felt like love at the same time. And I remember that when I was with him, I had read 1 Corinthians 13, which I didn't know that was in the Bible. That was amazing, especially the first part for me, because it said, if I speak with tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I've become a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mystery and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountain, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I own, and if I hand over my body so I may boast, but have not love, I gain nothing. And I had seen people that had lots of faith, that were giving lots of stuff, and that were talking about the peace of the world, that were like gurus and special, special people, but 
love was missing. Something was missing. You know, and I remember when you would ask me, so what is love? And I would always give her the same answer. God is love and Yeshua is the personality, the person Perso of love. Persification or something like that of love. And so as I was reading more, uh, it was during a New Age festival in San Francisco. I was going to many places, many different bars where people were like celebrating all carelessly. I felt lonely. I felt empty and I felt this is useless. So I went back to where I was staying, picked up the Bible and I couldn't put it down all night. I read it through the night and as I was reading it, God in his amazing love was drawing me to him and he invited me to follow him. And I knew, and it was with such a love, I knew that I wanted to follow him and I knew that all the rest was nothing. This is the pearl of great price. And I gave my life to him. And then I thought, what about Stuart? He's the only other person that I know had an experience like this with God. I didn't know anybody else. And I thought, what if I never see him or it takes a long time? I also knew in my heart, you know, he's meant to be my husband. So um, to rewind a little bit, when I just arrived in California, I had sent a letter to him because I wanted to make sure we stayed in touch. And uh, his Yiddish mama picked up the letter. And when she saw that it was from me, she wanted to throw it in the trash because she wanted for her son a nice Jewish girl, not a wild goy like me. And so... She was going to throw it in the trash, but then she said, the way it was addressed, I can't put it in the trash because only God could have brought this letter here. It was so messed up the way I addressed it. So she called them, and in per God's perfect timing, uh, after I had surrendered my life to him, to God, and, uh, and prayed what's going to happen with Stuart, 9 o'clock in the morning, the phone rings, and it's him. And he said, when are you coming home? And I said, as soon as I can. <laughs> and so I just want to say that to go back to that dream that yes, I had, that I forgot to say that part, that to go back to the dream. When I was in New York and he picked me up the first time, the car parked. It was a blue car. And I saw it. In, when I was in New York, I realized this is the car in that dream I had. And then afterwards I looked, this is the guy in the dream. And so even then I realized, but I didn't understand what it meant and what the you know, meaning of this whole thing. But afterwards I did understand and that God was using him to bring peace in my heart and to bring the Prince of Peace in my life. And I married the man of my dream <laughs> Literally. <laughs> and so we got married and started our journey as a team. Chantal said she really liked that when I said, we're going to be a team for God. And we started our adventure and our journey as a team for God. And a little side note, uh, my Yiddish mama uh, became very close to Chantal. She said Chantal is one of the two 
dearest people to her in her entire life because she sees a purity and goodness in her, which Yeshua really refined. And uh, she also told me after a few years, she said, Stewie, son, you know, why don't you just get rid of this Yeshua because you've already become a better Jew and a better person, but it's this Yeshua that made me a better Jew and a better person. And at 82, my Yiddish mama, who believed in God all of her life, said she was afraid to meet God, she was afraid to die, and I explained to her one more time why Yeshua takes all that away, and she embraced him, and then God gave her a vision. Uh, and I was amazed by it that she saw the hands of God coming to her, and he said, everything will be fine. And the hands of God throughout the Tanakh, the Old Testament, mean the salvation of God. And so this is like all part of that story. And I, I just hope that for those of you who know the Lord, that just for us revisiting this story, it, it ignites some fresh things, and I hope it ignites some fresh things in you. And for those of you here and online that are seeking you're seeking for truth. You're seeking for answers. You're seeking for meaning. Maybe you can relate more to Chantal's story or more to my story or a little of both. Uh, I just want to give you an invitation that uh, this same Yeshua, the Messiah of Israel, who loves Jewish people, Catholic people, Buddhist people, atheist people, all people, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Yeshua the Messiah, that uh, he's holding out those loving arms to you as well. And if you will turn away from your ways and turn to him, he will set you free from the chains of sin that bind you and addictions and all of this stuff and fears. And he will do the same thing that he did for me. He cleansed me. He made me new and gave me a new start in life, and he wants to do that for you. And so I just want to invite you to pray with me, whether you're online or here, if uh, this is you and tonight's your night to find the purpose in life, the truth. You know what Yeshua said? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to Father God, the Creator, except through me. That's for our Jewish people. That's for every people under heaven, rich, poor, educated, non-educated. This is for all. And so let's just pray together. Avinu Malkenu, our Father, our King. I stand in awe. On one side, you are so far above us. You are, you are perfect love. You are justice. You are truth. You are holy and pure and powerful. You created the heavens and the earth. But on the other side of things, or, or all part of who you are, you are love and mercy and kindness, and you, you invite us to be your beloved sons and daughters, to be intimate with you through Messiah Yeshua. And so, Lord, I pray for everyone that will hear or see this testimony of your amazing grace in my life and Chantal's life. I pray that their hearts would open 
to your amazing love and mercy. Because it's the, it's the way, it's the truth. It's life in its fullness. It's the fulfilling life. And for my brothers and sisters that needed a reigniting or a return to the lover of their soul, Messiah Yeshua, I pray that they would take that step tonight with you, Lord. And I thank you. So I just want to say, if you prayed that prayer of receiving Yeshua for the first time in your life, or you want to pray that prayer, find somebody that you can be with, that can help you grow. Find a good messianic congregation. Find some believers that can help you grow like I was privileged to help Chantal grow. Don't be alone. This is the greatest decision you'll ever make in your life, and there are good people that want to help you walk the journey. So, on that note, Shabbat Shalom once again, and just a delight to be with you all, and I hope you're strengthened and encouraged. I'm strengthened and encouraged by hearing our stories again. Shalom, shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Rabbi Kevin. Please like, subscribe, and share this link with a friend. We would be grateful to receive your tax-deductible gift to further the good news of Messiah Yeshua. To make a contribution, please click on the PayPal link in the description. Also, to view our regular services, click the link in the description for our YouTube channel. If you would like more information about Yeshua the Messiah or how you can become part of our Bethlehem family, please visit our website at www.bethlehem.org. That's B-E-T-H-H-A-L-L-E-L dot O-R-G. Or call 770-641-3000. If you are in the metro Atlanta area, please visit us for an Arab Shabbat service, Friday nights at 8 o'clock, or Shabbat services, Saturday mornings at 11. God bless and Shalom. Lie, lie, lie.